Hi, everyone, and welcome to Ion Markets Quick Takes. I'm Ali Curry, and every week, along with my guests, Amir Kwaja and Chris Barnes, we take a quick dive into the headlines on the Clara's blog. Let's get started. Hi, Amir. Hi, Chris. Hey, Ali. Hey, Ali. How you doing? I'm doing great. It's great to have you here. We're back for some quick takes. Amir, let's start with you. What are your quick takes for this week? Which headline from the Clara's FT blog would you like to discuss? Great. Thanks, Ali. Most active names in credit and equity derivatives, August 2023. So on a monthly or quarterly basis, I write an article on most active names. So that data we use is based on SEC swap data repositories, yeah, which cover securities. Really, they cover two important markets, credit defaults swaps on single names and total return swaps on equities. And data tells us what's trading in those markets. So the reason that's important is that, you know, we all know that um, Credit Suisse, you know, went under, under this year, was taken over by UBS. And um, there are a number of factors uh, contributing to the loss in confidence on, on Credit Suisse. A few losses, particularly. So Green Seal, you know, which we won't talk about, but really Archegos, if you remember, was a large hedge fund in the US where Credit Suisse was the prime broker. In early 2021, they went under, causing a 10 billion loss of which Credit Suisse you know, had to take over 50% or 5 billion. So again, a factor that contributed to the loss in confidence of Credit Suisse was Archegos and their relationship with Credit Suisse, right? And Archegos was taking large positions in equity markets, but using total return swaps, which are not disclosed through the normal reporting or were not banned anyway. So since then, the SEC has imposed regulations for transparency in total return swaps. And now we can see the volumes that trade in that marketplace that are off exchange, but at large in size. So, so basically, so each month or every other month, I look at the volumes in um, total return swaps on single stocks and single name credit default swaps. Because a lot of names trade in these markets, there's thousands of issuers, you know, looking at just trades, it's hard to spot what's going on. Yeah. So, so what's disclosed is every time a trade happens in single name CDS or in total return swaps on equities by a US person, the trade is made public. But there's trades in thousands of different names or issuers. So what we do is we collect that data. You know, we have the time of the trade, we have the size, we have the price, and we create aggregate views. Now, one of our most popular views is what we call the top most active view. So it really hones on the most active 100 names that traded yesterday or this week or this month compared to the prior month. You can see really where trading, you know, has changed a lot you know, as to which names. So, you know, so in August, I, I looked at what were the most active names in CDS higher than their, you know, their prior month average. So you very quickly, we can see, you know, for August in US corporates on single MCDS, US Steel, you know, was up a lot based on his, his prior month average, Ford Motor Credit, American Axle. So, so these are names that are either, you know, issuing um, debt and the market is taking a view on the credit spreads of those names, right, in the CDS market. So where activity is higher than normal or lower than normal, there's some activity happening in that name, right, or, or a change in market view of what the credit spread should be of issuers of their issues, right? So that's, that's kind, of, kind of important. In the same way, TRSs, total return swaps, are used to take large positions off exchange on single stocks. And if we look again at US equities, you know, we can see much higher activity in August compared to July for Johnson & Johnson, Akamai Technologies, Nikola Corporation, you know, which is a um, EV type manufacturer, 
AMC Entertainment, you know, so AMC, if you recall, you know, this is one of these Reddit stocks like GameStop that were really huge and driven up by investors in retail. So again, they had a bigger month in um, total returns stock markets. So that gives people insight. You know, I mean, it's lagging, but it tells you what is trading and what size and above average size in different periods, yeah, either daily, weekly, monthly. Yeah, so that's kind of my summary. And really, we're trying to show that this transparency, you know, transparency in trades helps make markets more efficient. Yeah, and, and this data is really contributes to that. Yeah, and really, the purpose of markets is to provide an efficient venue for buyers and sellers to trade, right? Better quality data on transactions that are actually happening help make efficient markets, right? And, and now since um, I think Feb 2022, we have daily transaction volume on all trades done by US persons in credit default swaps on on single names and on total chain swaps on equities. Amir, on your last point on transparency there, probably worth us dwelling a little bit on some of the frustrations we have with this data as well, right? So thinking back to when Credit Suisse was particularly stressed, there were banking market stresses around regional banks in the US as well. So of course, uh, with my trusty blogging hat on, I turned to the to the SBSDR data, and we wanted to see what the potential contagion aspects of that were. So we went looking through the data, looking for single name CDS on banking stocks that may be subject to contagion, like Deutsche or Commerce, etc. And when I did that blog, the hope was that we could not only monitor volumes with this data, but to monitor the price data in there as well, right? And yes, I think it's just worth flagging for our listeners here that, that not all transparency data is equal. I think regular followers of the blog will remember back in 2012 and 2013, when DTCC first started publishing data for rates, there were data quality issues around it. And I, I like to think that one of the best uh, feedback mechanisms that uh, public transparency data can ever have is when people actually use it. And we certainly saw that with Cephu, Amir. Yes. Yeah. In 20, 2013. Yeah. And of course, your point is exactly correct. So SPSDRs have only been live since Feb 2020, so I guess a year and a half. And while the transaction data and volume is good, the price information is not always present on the records. Right? So really, ideally, you want to see what credit spread a name is, is traded at and the size of the trade. Yeah. And often, unfortunately, we see that particularly, I think, um, I guess there's two main repositories for credit defaults in the US, ICE and DTCC. I think the ICE data tends to be better. You know, we often see, you know, we, we usually see uh, the credit spread that the trade traded at, you know, which is, should be published by the, on the public record by SEC regulations. On the DC repository, it's generally empty, that field. It's not populated, right? So that's, you know, not great because really we, we want to see, you know, have spreads widened or have they collapsed in a crisis. And really in the crisis, banking spreads of certain bank exploded, right? But seeing that in real transactions is more important than seeing, you know, hypothetical spreads that people are making but not, not transacting. So that's unfortunate, but you know we we hope of, you know by giving that feedback in the public, you know that sh that should improve. I think on the transaction volume side, trades are capped at five million dollars size. Yeah, so the trade could be 
5 million, 50 million, 100 million, but we see 5 billion. That's just to keep it consistent with uh, with trades in the US of corporate bonds. But again, over time, we expect that to be recalibrated to a, a different amount, right? You know, maybe higher for sovereigns, uh, different, et cetera, because you would like to see more, you know, higher portion, a higher amount of volume disclosed without impairing liquidity. Because again, these are markets that trade infrequently in large size. So you don't want to disseminate too quickly a public transaction before the market maker has hedged it or, you know, Pair liquidity, but really, yeah, price needs great improvement. Yeah, and I, th- I think, Chris, as you pointed out, the more public eyes I look at the data, the more obvious it becomes that these fields need to be fixed, and there's pressure on the reporting parties, the repositories, you know, their regulators to make sure that happens. Yeah, I think also uh, an observation on the TRS data for the equities. I think the use case of that data is probably a little bit different to the use case of rates, which is more on a macro perspective. When you're looking at the data here, just looking at some of these names and and the big changes month on month, you know, clearly a lot of that is event related. So for example, if there's an earnings report that month, the name is far more likely to reach our list of of top 50. And so you almost need to get into that mindset of, right, this is transparency data, but to make sense of the transparency data, I need to combine it with either underlying market knowledge or other sources of data as well to make it meaningful and and to interpret those rules. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So clearly, so if a firm reduces quarterly earnings and the market has a different expectation, you would see higher volume on that stock. So I think, in fact, quite often when I do this blog, the names that show up, because I'm looking at the volume data, I look at some cause for the names. And, you know, Google is great. You know, you just type that name in and you can find some recent news tied into that month on that name. Either there's been an issue or there's been a quarterly earnings and the market responded positive or negative fashion to those quarterly earnings or some acquisition, yeah, yeah often M&A. So you're right. So, so this data is best tied into knowledge about news on particular issuers. I mean, really what we're doing is highlighting stocks that have traded much more in TRS than their average over a previous week or previous day or previous month. Then you can link to other sources, right, to get a, get a better picture of what's going on. So, uh, Amir, you, you mentioned there that uh, Google's a really, really useful resource. I need to take this opportunity to point out that Google's a really useful resource for coming up with good blog titles as well. I think uh, we uh, really need to move away from quarterly review, you know, and and get some more clickbait out there. I mentioned Bard last week. Yes. I did go back to Bard this week as well. I asked Bard for, I asked it for, what is a good title for a Claris Financial Technology podcast featuring Amir and Chris? Would you like to hear Uh the uh, top three? I think we would, yeah. In third place, it was FinTech Deep Dive with Amir and Chris. Second place, we've got <laughs> the Claris FinTech Show, where finance meets technology. But my uh, favorite from, from our bard by a long, long way is FinTech Disruptors, Amir and Chris on the cutting edge. I'm not sure we'll uh, run with any of those. Oh, Ali, what, what do you think, Ali, about those three titles? I'm guessing the third one, your last one, is definitely the, the cutting edge one. That one gets my vote. <laughs> All right. All yeah. right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> call, call, call for the readers, yeah, yeah or listeners. And Amir, Listen, uh, listeners, not readers. before we continue, tell me again, what is the title of your blog post that you were just discussing? I think you mentioned it at the beginning, but tell us again. Sure. 
Yeah, most active names in credit and equity derivatives, August 2023. And as Chris says, next time I shall use Google Bard to give me a better title. Well, Chris, let's move over to you. What are your quick takes for this week? Which headline from the Claris blog? This is pre-Bard. Which headline from the Claris bo- <laughs> from the Claris blog would you like to discuss? This week, I have chosen to write about Europe. It's a very, very hot topic in the markets at the moment. We tend to approach it from a Claris perspective, mainly in terms of monitoring market share. This is a fantastic use case for pretty much all of our data products. The title of the blog is Brexit continues to impact Euro swaps market share for CCPs and CEFs. It's uh, really written in response to an ISDA paper that was published in conjunction with a number of other trade associations, talking about the possibility that European-based market participants will have an active account requirement at a onshore CCP. Now, I don't want to get too much into the politics or the reasons behind that. Uh, Claris did write a very well-followed blog immediately after Brexit, which was called Moving Euro Clearing Out of the UK, the $77 billion problem. I must admit that that $77 billion is is such a big number, I uh, often forget whether it's $7 billion, $177 billion, or even bigger. But that really highlights uh, the impact that if you've got a CCP, uh, the real benefits to market participants of CCPs is multilateral netting. And breaking that netting set from a market participant's viewpoint can be very painful, can be very costly, and that can be the result of uh, so-called location policies, whereby you try and move a portion of business from a netted multilateral set into a, a standalone silo. We've been monitoring both the impacts of Brexit interest rate derivative markets and what that means for CCPs, for CEFs, what it means from a market infrastructure perspective. We tend to be particularly keen on writing these types of blog because they change from month on month on month. It's a way of monitoring market share. This also at the moment is potentially impacting policy as well. So it's really important to have timely data, but equally It's quite an interesting, well, it's not quite, it's really interesting from a sheer data perspective. Because of course, for market share, there's numerous ways of measuring market share, whether you are looking at open interest, whether you're looking at volume that trades, how you measure that volume, whether it's in terms of notional, whether it's in terms of DVO1. Claris are huge, huge proponents of rates market. We should not talk about notional volumes. We should talk about DVO1 because DVO1 is the amount of risk that is being traded. DVO1 is a measure that allows you to fairly compare volumes in a three-month compared to volumes in a 30-year trade, which are fundamentally different contracts, different length contracts, but the DVO1 is really a maturity agnostic measure of that risk. So when we look at CCPs, we have DVO1 data available. What that allows us to do is measure the market share of CCPs in euro swaps. Now, when I talk about euro swaps historically, that would always have been FRAs and interest rates. Of course, increasingly in an RFR world, more and more of the rates market is trading versus ESTA. So when I talk about swaps, I'm also including 
OIS swaps in that. What we see recently in the data is very interesting. There's really two major CCPs with volumes. That's uh, London-based LCH Swapclear and uh, Eurex in, in Frankfurt. The Eurex market share by our measure, which is DVO one traded per month, has in the past been as high as between 9 and 10%. But August 2023 was an interesting month. Volumes were higher than a typical August. But we did see the Eurex market share slip. And the Eurex market share was actually down at 3.7%. We don't know if that is a sign of things to come, whether it will change. But I thought it was a, a timely reminder that these market shares do, do move and can move by quite significant amounts month on month on month. So an interesting one to monitor and, and very, very uh, timely from a policy perspective. The second thing that's happening in Europe at the moment is that ICE are in the process of closing their European-based CCP for CDS. That will allow ICE to move all of their cleared CDS to a single US-based CCP for market participants. That obviously increases the propensity for netting and so could be uh, potentially beneficial for, for market participants from that perspective. For local European based clients who maybe don't have the same type of exposures for, for US, they continue to have a European domiciled option in LCH's CDS clear. So for the past kind of 18 months, we've seen the market share figures moving with ICE clear Europe uh, shrinking and shrinking and CDS clear growing. Uh, I thought it was interesting to see that both CCPs, so LCH CDS Clear and ICE have been happy with that process. I imagine as a result of uh, ICE seeing more netting in the US house and LCH increasing their market share. So as at the end of August, the LCH market share now stands at about 28, 29%. Finally, just from a data perspective, I think the market share of the global euro swaps market that trades on a CEF is a very, very interesting one to monitor. We wrote about this uh, at the very at the very beginning of uh, Brexit. We quickly saw a move whereby about 15% of the global euro swaps market moved to trade on CEF. And that was due to regulations and CEFs being the only platforms that were equally identified by both the UK and Europe as fulfilling the trading obligation. And so actually... Brexit resulted in moving a portion of the market to US-based uh, platforms. Now, uh, recently, we've seen a big divide in how you measure that market share of Euro, uh, of, CEF's, of CEF market share for Euro swaps. So if you measure it by DVO1, it's been remarkably consistent over the past two, three years at 15% of the global market. However, if you look at the amount of notional that's trading on US SEFs, that market share can actually go up as high as 30%. So again, it's, it's this concept of, okay, all of this transparency data is out there. You need to be very mindful of the measures you're taking. You need to be mindful of the data you're looking at. We continue to believe that DVO1 is the right measure. If you look at SEF as kind of a purely brokerage 
platform, brokerage is largely charged as a percentage of DVO1 as opposed to a as opposed to as a percentage of notional, therefore in terms of market share, we think that we should be looking at DVO1 measures. It's just interesting that those two measures have diverged so much. So Chris, so you, yeah, so a few questions, yeah, for you. So I guess, yeah, so post-Brexit, you know, the equivalent termination by European regulators for UK-based CCPs, right, has been an issue. And um, we know that's been deferred a bit. Um, changes in Eurex market share, you know, to moving Euro clearing onshore versus offshore for European firms, hence the active account. But I guess the one, so some movement, but but we still have equivalents. And I know, I think it's now summer 2025, but is that the, yes. you know, the next date? Yeah. But but the one effect we have definitely have seen is that volume, which used to be on MTFs UK, which were European pre-Brexit. Now there's a you know UK-based MTF or a Amsterdam-based MTF, but volume some volume has gone on to US registered venues, right? Which is a surprise, right? The break of Brexit has caused the US to gain volume on certain trading venues. Correct. Do you have a view on whether that's played out or whether we will see that change and whether that also affects clearing in some sense? I don't think where the trade is executed impacts clearing. I should also flag from the clearing perspective that since that since we wrote this article about the uh, active account requirement risk of all, I've also followed up with a very detailed article. And, and that's the first time I've seen a number mentioned about what an active account might mean. And risk have floated with this idea that, that maybe 10%, maybe 15%. You know, it feels like a political question. Yeah. But step back a bit. So it's a question of CCPs are financially, what's the word, super important institutions. I forget what the term is, right? Systemically important yep. institutions that are backstopped by the local regulator, Bank of England, ECB, etc. Yeah. And firms in those jurisdictions need equivalents to be able to have large exposures at foreign CCPs. The regulator can use a carrot or a stick. They can say you cannot trade, withdraw equivalents. It'll be more expensive or carrots, right? You know, there's some benefits or the market will find its own solution, right? So, so markets clearly would like to gravitate, as you say, to a solution where they get the most multilateral netting benefits, which are the most efficient for them from margin and capital point of view. And But that, that may have adverse impacts on financial stability, right? Who backstops this systemically important institution, right? So I guess the active um, account is a... How do you term that? It's not a, it's a softer regulatory requirement, right? To say European firms should maintain active clearing relationships in the onshore CCP, but still allowed to use off- offshore CCPs, right? That's the kind of idea, right? Yeah. The soft approach would be exactly as you say, to, to allow the market to our decide, you know, and the market at the moment has consistently traded anywhere between five and ten percent of new volumes at Eurex. That seems to be where the market has stabilized recently. One of the motivations for writing the blog was yes, that has dipped recently. Noticing on on your previous blog as well on on CCP volumes and share that market share is actually lower if you just look at Esther. It can have consequences for benchmark reform and, and market structure changes as well. But I guess 
But Chris, but I would say, you know, the market decides on, you know, firstly based on liquidity, what clients prefer in terms of jurisdiction and law, yep. right? You know, but also just based on upcoming regulatory changes that may or may not happen, right? So the threat to withdraw equivalents, you know, is a deadline, right? Yes. So I guess that that can, that can also influence. So clearly there's regulatory drivers. So what about software is that the active account is softer, it's much softer than withdrawing equivalents, right? Yeah. So clearly there are some client firms that would that would prefer to clear in Europe or in US rather than UK, you just just based on um, you know their their jurisdiction or their their legal position. Debate the point as to what it means for market share, right? I think a point that trading on venues is different to where the trade clears. Yep. Yeah. But it still affects, you know, it just still affects um, you know, where firms choose to set up their venues, where they hire staff, you know, where they have their, you know, where they have their risk, et cetera. I just think of the, the swaps market naturally as kind of a very, very global beast, right? I haven't traded for a long time now, a very long, long time. It was never a consideration as to where a client was or where a dealer was, yes. right? The the whole consideration was liquidity and accessing the maximum amount of liquidity so that you can serve your clients in the best way possible. And then all of a sudden, if you're used to working in a global financial hub like London, but you have a European client or a European dealer, all of a sudden you can't face that European dealer where you would normally trade. You need to actually say, oh, hold on, I need to trade that on a US-based platform because that's the only platform that has equivalence for both of our jurisdictions. You know, that's, that, that's a real fundamental change and the reason yeah, yeah efficiency, efficiency and, and you have to remember that's at the point of execution of a trade and so that has very very meaningful impacts on price moves on clients on your ability to service clients and so from the perspective of a trader trying to do their job when you impact where they can execute trades it is very very meaningful but the flip side is, you know, regulators backstop the CCP in their country. And when the CCP has flash resources that are in the billions or hundreds of billions, those are large sums for many economies backstop. And the concern more is, you know, I guess it's more, but in the event of default of a clearing member, what, what does it what does it mean, right? And clearly we know that CCPs are you know, well-governed, well-risk-managed, lots of collateral, lots of default funds, you know, resources to backstop. So they really mutualize their exposure and do not depend on the central bank bailing them out. Exactly. And the whole way to get a risk-neutral CCP is to ensure that there are processes in place to spread that risk and to minimize the risk as much as possible. If you then have to run directional dollar positions in one CCP, versus directional euro positions in another CCP, that is going to increase the amount of risk that each CCP is carrying. Yes. And to me, then the only question is, you know, is that increase in cost worth paying for, I don't know, superior financial stability in, in, an, in an extreme crisis? I would argue it's not going to create more financial stability in a crisis, though, because you've then got two independent ways of managing outright yeah. risk, which would essentially, if they were at a bank, they wouldn't be managed separately. They would be managed together. 
And so really, really importantly, in the event of a crisis, the most efficient way to manage the risk should really be our goal. Well, does it really clarify which regulator is on the hook, right? As opposed to, you know, so in the end, the buck stops somewhere and the buck generally stops at the central bank of that currency, right? That regular CCP. So maybe in extreme crisis, it makes it very clear who's responsible to making sure orderly markets function. Yeah. Then we would say for a global market, global regulators would get together from different jurisdictions and work out a solution. But it does depend, you know, by, you know, which country's taxpayer bears the costs, right? Should that extreme event happen, there they are taxpayer losses, right? I think it's a very, a very emotional subject. I think it's it's also political. We could go on yes. and on and on. But I think at some point we need to stop. And Ali is waving at me saying stop. Amir and Chris, thank you so much for sharing your quick takes. Let's do it again next week. Thanks, Ali. Thanks, Ali. And that's our episode for today. You can read more about these topics on the Claris blog, and you can follow Ion Markets on X, formerly Twitter, and on LinkedIn. Until next week, thank you for joining us.